Well, as we come to the Word of God, I would invite you to take your Bible and turn with me to John chapter 1. John chapter 1 for this message entitled, The Deity of Jesus the Christ. Our text for today is John 1, 1 through 5, and in these opening words of the Gospel of John, the Apostle dives into the deep end of the theological pool to proclaim the true nature of Jesus the Christ. John 1, 1 through 18 is the prologue of the gospel. And like any prologue of a book, it introduces the concepts and themes that John will draw out throughout the rest of his gospel. He puts them here so that our ears would be perked and our minds would be tuned in, ready to see how he will unpack these truths throughout the various accounts of the life and teaching of Jesus. I'm going to read verses 1 through 18 to get us started, but as we read, I want you to observe that in verses 1 through 5, he introduces us to the deity of Jesus the Christ, the, the true nature of Christ. In verses 6 to 13, he introduces us to the responses to Jesus the Christ, how people responded to him. And in verses 14 to 18, he introduces us to the revelation of Jesus the Christ. That is, that Jesus revealed God to us. In his person. That gives you a preview of our upcoming messages. Now follow along as I read verses 1 to 18, and then we'll narrow our focus to verses 1 through 5. Hear the word of the Lord. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, has come into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him and cried out, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because He was before me. For from His, that is the word's fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. This is God's Word. We saw last week that John's purpose in writing this gospel is to demonstrate to his readers that the Messiah that they had been longing for was in fact Jesus. 
And his goal in demonstrating that fact is that they would believe in him, that, they, that those lost in darkness would come to the light and that they might experience life in his name. Abundant life now and life eternal. But before John begins calling witnesses to the stand to prove his case, he tells us here in advance what he sets out to prove. Now, John writes this gospel about 20 to 30 years after Jesus walked the earth. And because the Jews and Gentiles during the life of Christ did not believe that Jesus was God or the Messiah, they did not accept his claims to deity, that unbelief colored the news about him as it spread throughout the Roman Empire. The deity of Christ was one of the key reasons that the Jews wanted to kill Jesus. It was the very heart of their conflict. Sure, they didn't like that he broke the Sabbath. They hated that. And they were nervous about his popularity among the people. But it was his claim to be God that sparked the murderous thoughts in their heart. So John here, knowing that you can't win a physical or theological or ideological battle without attacking the enemy's stronghold, he goes straight to the issue that many found offensive. He doesn't beat around the bush. He doesn't give hints or try to draw his readers in only to ambush them later. No, he comes right out of the gate with clarity and specificity to declare that Jesus is God. Now, the Old Testament is abundantly clear that the Messiah would be, in fact, God. We saw last week that the roles that the Messiah was prophesied to fulfill could not be fulfilled by any mere man. And further study would reveal that the titles given to the Messiah in the Old Testament also convey that he is God. Titles like Emmanuel, God with us, Mighty God, Ancient of Days, The Root of Jesse, even the title Son of Man, which doesn't sound like a title for God, the way it's used in, in Daniel makes it clear that it is, in fact, referring to the deity of the Messiah. So the work of the Messiah and the titles of the Messiah make it clear that the coming Christ would be God. But the people in Jesus' day were not expecting that. Why? Well, because in their unbelief, they could not understand the Scripture. And over the centuries, the rabbis developed a hermeneutic, a way of interpreting Scripture that was really more allegorical and replaced the clear in and obvious meaning with imaginative interpretations. Being spiritually dead and blind and looking through the Scripture with a skewed lens, they had false expectations of the Messiah. They hoped for little more than a descendant of David who would come and kick out the Romans and establish the independence of Israel once again. So their expectations were limited and short-sighted. Now, Jesus brought this to their attention many times. The apostles declared that Jesus would, was God in their preaching and writing. And here in John's gospel, some 30 to 40 years after the life of Christ, he begins his gospel with a direct proclamation of the deity, the divinity of Jesus, who is the Christ, the Messiah. This is a necessary starting point to understanding who Jesus 
is both then and now. 2,000 years after the life of Christ, the news of Christ has spread all over the world. Certainly there are many who have not yet heard the name of Christ, but there are a great many who have. And many have that have some knowledge of Christ. The problem is, most of that knowledge is false. Almost all the world religions have something to say about Jesus. Islam, Judaism, Buddhism, Hinduism, Taoism. Jesus is too significant a figure for the followers of those religions to have nothing to say about Jesus. So most of them paint Jesus as at least friendly to their religion by hanging on to some of the sayings and and, and correlating it to what their religions teach. They praise a caricature of Jesus, but they deny the reality of Jesus, all of his teaching and all of his work on the earth, especially his resurrection. Well, then there's the Christian cults, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, otherwise known as Mormons, the, Bi- the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society, otherwise known as Jehovah's Witnesses, Christian Science, and many others. Really fundamental to all of those religions, those cults, is a denial, a rejection of the deity of Jesus. And by making him a mere man, they can elevate their leaders to the same level, and in some cases, all of us to the same level as Jesus. Even Roman Catholicism has a false view of Jesus, and I would prove that to you on two points. Number one, they worship Mary, often above Jesus. And they encourage syncretism with pagan religions around the world. Roman Catholicism either leaves Jesus in the manger or leaves him on the cross. What they don't do is make him supreme overall. Well, in addition to world religions and Christian cults and Catholicism, there's also the court of public opinion that you would find on the street. Ask almost anyone on the street, Tell me about Jesus. Who was Jesus? You'll almost certainly hear them say, oh, he was a good teacher. He He was a moral, ethical leader. Some might even say he was an enlightened guru. But nothing more. All this to say that there is as much need to proclaim the deity of Jesus Christ today as there has ever been. The deity of Jesus is is not a side issue. It, It is as necessary to believe that Jesus is God as it is to believe in the resurrection if we are to be saved. And so, in seeking to prove that Jesus is the Christ, John here begins by asserting that Jesus is God. And as we will see throughout the Gospel of John, he keeps coming back to that very issue. Now, why is this important for us today, here at Hope Bible Church, where, if you're a member, you must affirm that Jesus is God? Well, very often, when people explain the Gospel, in their membership interview, or just in conversation, we leave out two key truths. The resurrection and the deity of Christ. We leave Christ on the cross, and we just don't say who Jesus is. And yet those two ingredients are the most active ingredients that make make the gospel powerful. You take out the resurrection, and there's no victory over sin and death, and we're all dead in our sin. You take out the deity of Christ, and he's no better than Lazarus, who also was risen from the dead, but he can't save anyone. But with the deity of Christ and the resurrection, the gospel becomes the power of God to save those who believe. 
And so, beloved, it's vital that we understand and declare what the Holy Spirit through the Apostle John teaches in this passage. Now, here in John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, we see the deity of Christ expressed in five ways. In verse 1, we see that Jesus is the divine Christ. The divine Christ. In verse 2, we see that Jesus is the pre existent Christ. The pre existent Christ. In verse 3, we see that Jesus is the supreme Christ. The supreme Christ. And in verse 4, we see that Jesus is the saving Christ. In verse 5, we see that Jesus is the victorious Christ. The divine Christ, the pre-existent Christ, the supreme Christ, the saving Christ, and the victorious Christ. Let's begin with the divine Christ. Look at verse 1 to see that Jesus is the divine Christ. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. These words declare to us in no uncertain terms that Jesus is God while also making a distinction between Jesus and God. Now that may seem confusing at first and some might even say it's contradictory, but it is not. In fact, John is only saying here what the Old Testament teaches. What's new is that John is putting a face and a name to identify the Word of God. Look at the text to see what John says to declare these truths. He starts with this phrase, in the beginning was the Word. This calls to our minds the first words in the book of Genesis, in the beginning, God. John wants us to make that connection and remember that before God created the heavens and the earth, there was God and only God. Therefore, to declare that the Word was in the beginning is a statement of the deity of Christ. Even Genesis 1 makes it clear, though, that to say that he was in the beginning is not to say that there was only God and that God was only one person. In verse 2 of Genesis 1, we learn that the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. So there's a mysterious distinction between the, the Spirit of God and God himself. And while the text of Genesis 1 doesn't ascribe personality to the words that God spoke in the course of creation, John himself uses this term word because of how the Old Testament collectively speaks of the word of God. Consider these five ways in which the word of God is presented as the agent of God. The word of God, first of all, is the agent of creation. God spoke everything into existence. And so Psalm 33 verse 6 says, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of His mouth all their host. The word of God is the agent of creation. Second, the word is the agent of salvation. Psalm 119.41 says, Let your steadfast love come to me, O Lord, your salvation according to your word. So the Word of God reveals the steadfast love and of God and brings salvation. Third, the Word is the agent of God accomplishing His will. Isaiah 55 verses 10 and 11 says, For as the rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return to it there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my Word be. That goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. So the word is the agent of accomplishing God's will. 
Fourth, the word is the agent of God's relationship with his people. Over a hundred times in the Old Testament, we find the phrase, the word of the Lord came. And the word there is personified as if it's sent from God as a messenger to come to various men and women to comfort them and encourage them and rebuke them and strengthen them in their time of need. So the word is the agent of God's relationship with his people. And then fifth, the word is the agent of God's revelation. The prophets were sent by God to proclaim the word to the people of God, to call them to repentance, to warn them of judgment, to promise future salvation. And seven out of the 12 minor prophets begin with the words, the word of the Lord came to Hosea. The word of the Lord came to Joel and Jonah and Micah and so on. So the word is the agent of God's revelation. So when John here in his gospel refers to Jesus as the word, he's saying to every Jew and Gentiles that the word of God who creates, who saves, who works, who relates, and who reveals is now in the flesh and his name is Jesus Christ. The word of God is the manifestation of God to mankind. In the Old Testament, that manifestation was through words and sentences and paragraphs. In the New Testament, that manifestation is through a man whose name is Jesus. This is why the author of Hebrews writes that God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets, and in many portions and in many ways, in these last days, he has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of, the, of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. And, and he upholds all things by the word of his power. Now, Scripture is clear that God created the world, that God does not share His glory with anyone, and that only God bears His own divine nature. And that only God can uphold the universe with His Word. So when those things are attributed to Jesus, there can be no other conclusion except that Jesus is God. Now look at verse 1 again and see what else John says. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. This here and its repetition in verse 2 makes a distinction between Jesus or the Word and God. Now the translation here is good, but it's not the normal preposition with. It's really the preposition toward. The Word was toward God, if you will. And the idea here is that the Word and God were not simply coexisting as if to emphasize their bare existence, but rather the idea is to emphasize their posture toward one another, that they are in relationship with one another. So the Word and God did not exist separately, but rather together. Jesus alludes to this, or more than that, speaks to this in John 17, verse 5, when He says, Father, glorify Me in Your own presence with the glory that I had with You before the world existed. The Father and the Son shared glory together. Not only that, later in the prayer, Jesus says, Father, I desire that they also whom you've given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. So the Word and the Father shared glory and love before foundation of the world. 
So again, when John says the Word was with God, he means to say that the Word and God were in relationship with one another. Now finally, to remove any possibility of doubt of what he's trying to say, John writes this at the end of verse 1. And the Word was God. Here, the, the words, the grammar, and the context all combine to yield one and only one possible meaning. You know what it is? The Word was God. It's really out of a gross misunderstanding of Greek grammar and ignoring the context that some have taken this to mean that the Word was a God, such as Jehovah's Witnesses, or that the Word was somehow divine, something like a, a demigod. But such interpretations are overruled by standard rules of Greek grammar, which is why there's really no debate at all among Greek and Bible scholars as to what John is trying to say. Really, the only ones who reject these clear and explicit words are those whose religion doesn't allow them to accept what John plainly says. Well, inspired by the Holy Spirit, what John wrote means precisely what he intended, and it cannot mean anything else. It can only mean that the Word was God. Contrary to those who would say that this idea of the divinity of Jesus was made up later, decades later, by the church and not held by the early apostles or certainly not by Jesus Himself, Jesus Himself claimed to be God on multiple occasions and the people around Him understood exactly what He was trying to say. We'll see this throughout the gospel, but let me give you just one example for now. In John chapter 5, the, the Jews were seeking to kill him because, it says, he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. My friends, Jesus is God. And that means that we must believe in him. We must worship him. And we must tell others about this God who became a man. Well, look at verse 2 and see that Jesus is the pre-existent Christ. The pre-existent Christ. It says, He was in the beginning with God. While the word he here is an appropriate translation, it's technically not the personal pronoun he, but the demonstrative pronoun this. It's as if John is, is pointing back to verse 1 and saying, this word, this word who is God, he's the one I'm talking about. He was in the beginning with God. And, and this draws our attention back to the relationship between the word and God before the foundation of the word, world, which means that the wor word preexisted all things. The deity of Christ and the preexistence of Christ are really intertwined truths that support one another. Because Jesus is God, ergo, he had to preexist. And because Jesus preexisted, he had to be God. And so it's important for John to emphasize both the preexistence and the divinity of Jesus because both come up as separate issues in various passages in the gospel. For example, in John chapter 6, the day after Jesus fed thousands of people by creating food, he declares this to, to the crowd that came after him. He said, For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And he says, I am the bread of life. Now the Jews understood the implication of what Jesus was saying. And, and so it says, So the Jews grumbled about him because 
He said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I've come down from heaven? In other words, people, as we all know, come into existence at the moment of birth. Or rather, conception. But Jesus claims that before he existed, or rather, that he existed before he was born. So they were confused because they could not understand how a man could exist before he was born. The pre-existence of Christ comes up again also in the discussion that Jesus had with the Pharisees in John chapter 8. Jesus said to them in verse 56, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, what? I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. There was no mistaking the claim that Jesus made. He not only claimed to exist before Abraham, but he claimed to be Yahweh, the I am. A moment ago, I quoted from John chapter 17, where Jesus spoke of the glory and the love that he shared with the Father before the foundation of the world. As we read through this gospel, we'll see that really more than any other gospel, John emphasizes the relationship between the Father and the Son. And I think he does that to make it clear that Jesus' claim to deity is not to put himself in competition with God, but rather to affirm, as he does, that he and the Father are one. Well, here in John 1, the apostle declares Jesus to be the divine Christ in verse 1, the preexistent Christ in verse 2. Now look at verse 3 to see that Jesus is the supreme Christ. Verse 3, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Here, John declares that the word Jesus created all things. And this not only points to the supremacy of Christ over all things, but it strengthens his claim to deity. Notice how he says this. First, we have that positive statement, which is kind of an exhaustive statement. All things were made through him. And then we have that negative statement, which is an exclusive statement. And without him, not was not anything made that was made. Now, while those sound the same, there is a a nuanced difference. In the first statement, he kind of looks at creation as a whole and says everything was made by Christ. In the second statement, it's as though he looks at every individual thing that falls under the category of having been made. And he affirms that nothing having the attribute of having been made was made apart from Christ. Now this rules out the possibility that the word was created. If the word was created, John would have to say there was at least one thing that was created that was created apart from Christ, the word himself. But he doesn't say that. He he doesn't allow for the possibility that the word falls under the category of being a created thing. And so if anything can be said to be created, John says, it was created by the Word. Now, what's the significance of this? 
To say that the word Jesus, the Christ created all things is to say two things. First, it is to declare his supremacy over all things. And second, it is to further strengthen his claim to deity. Consider the first. Because Jesus created all things, he is supreme over all things. Listen to Colossians, Colossians 1 verses 15 and 16. This is speaking of Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation. For in him, all things in heaven and on earth were created. Things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers, all things have been created through him and for him. There, when Paul says that Jesus was the firstborn of creation, that means that he is preeminent, that he is supreme, that he is above all and over all. And how do we know that? What's the proof that Paul gives us? He says, for because in him, in all things in heaven and on earth were created. That the word was the means by which God created all things means that the word was, has supremacy over all things. As creator, Jesus has authority over all things. The creator of anything by universal law has authority and sovereignty over that which they create. Whether it's a child who's making a Lego creation, whether it's the potter who has right to do whatever he wants with the clay, or whether it's God who can do whatever he wants with his creation. That's the line of reasoning that we find various places in Isaiah and Jeremiah, but perhaps most familiar to us is in the book of Romans in chapter 9 where Paul speaks of God's sovereignty over salvation. He says, who are you, O man, to answer back to God? What will the, will the molder say to its molder? Or excuse me, will the molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and one for dishonorable use? In short, as creator... The Word, Jesus the Christ, has supreme authority over all things. Now as well, as Creator, Jesus is supremely glorious. He gets more glory than everything because creation derives its glory from His Creator. From its Creator. Just as a painting gets is, is esteemed more for its its painter than its appearance, so is Christ esteemed above his creation. The author of Hebrews uses this argument to say that Jesus has supremacy over Moses. It says, yet Jesus was worthy of more glory than Moses, just as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. Now, as glorious as creation is, it is but one expression of the creative genius of God. One that will be done away with and replaced with yet another expression of God's creative power and beauty. So when John here declares that the Word created all things, he's not just making a historical fact, which in itself is true. He's declaring the supremacy of Christ over all things in power, in authority, and in glory. And that reality shines the spotlight on the deity of Jesus. Really further strengthening his case that 
and preparing us for what we will see in this gospel. As we study this gospel, we will see Jesus demonstrate his supremacy over creation. In John 2, he asserts his authority over creation by turning water into wine. In John 6, from five barley loaves and two fish, he fed thousands by creating food in abundance. Soon after that, he exerted his authority over creation by walking on water. And then in John 11, he asserts his authority over life and death by raising Lazarus from the dead. Time and time again, we will see Jesus in this gospel, who is the creator of all things, who has supreme power and authority and glory over all. Well, for us today, this means that Jesus has supreme power and authority and glory over your life and mine. Not one of us exists outside of the authority of Christ. Not one of our lives falls outside of his domain. Listen, we do not make him Lord of our life. He is Lord. We either submit or rebel. Further, our lives are to be lived for his glory and not our own. To to live for ourselves is to steal the glory that belongs only to Christ. And listen, because God is so zealous to see Christ glorified, he designs our lives to point to the glory of Christ. In John chapter 9, the disciples and Jesus come across a man who was born blind. As you know, they asked, why was this man born blind? And, And Jesus said, it's simply so that the Son of God would be glorified. Whatever's in your life, as difficult and painful as it is, it is designed by God, even if we can't understand it, to bring glory to Christ. Jesus is the supreme Christ. This brings us then to John's next argument for the deity of Christ. Look at verse 4 to see that Jesus is the saving Christ. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. This simple statement declares to us that the life and that life and salvation is found in none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the the source of life, and from His life flows salvation for those who are lost in darkness. Notice the first phrase, in Him was life. Life here is zoe, not bios, which means that John's not talking about physical or biological life, but rather the very essence of life and existence. And this affirms that what is true about God is also true about Christ, namely that he does not depend on anyone or anything outside of himself to exist. But he himself is the very source of life. In this statement, John ascribes aseity to Jesus Christ, which means that he is self-existent. Life exists only in him, and cannot exist outside of him. Scripture says that God gives to all mankind life and breath and everything, Acts 17.25. There is no life apart from him because there is no source of life apart from him. It does not matter if one is a follower of Christ or an enemy of Christ. All people live and move and have their being in him. 
But then notice the second statement. And the life was the light of men. This speaks of a particular kind of life, a spiritual life, also called eternal life. Here, John depends on the Old Testament language of light and darkness that refer to spiritual realities. Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20 uses light and darkness to talk about moral righteousness and evil. It says, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness. And then the metaphor changes a little bit. And darkness is used to refer to spiritual blindness and ignorance, such that light is spiritual life and understanding. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2 says, The people who walked in darkness, they've seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them the light has shone. Then Isaiah 29, verse 18 says, In that day the, the deaf will hear the words of a book, and out of their gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind will see. That's speaking of salvation. The Word who is Jesus Christ is God who is the source of all life and beyond His, and beyond that, His life is what brings salvation to mankind. This language of light and darkness and life is found time and time again in this gospel. In John chapter 3, verse 19, it says, And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. And the people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. And Jesus declared in John 8, verse 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And then he will say again in John 12, I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. Beloved, think about this. It's just occurred to me earlier this morning. Jesus did not come with a sword. He didn't come with a jackhammer. He didn't come with a gavel. He didn't come to, to beat us over the head with things. He didn't come to smash us. He came to shine the light into our darkness. There is gentleness and grace in that. He came to give us understanding, to, to open our eyes so that we might see His glory. Because of the curse of sin and the evil forces at work in the world, we, we live in a world of darkness, don't we? Sometimes that darkness is so thick and palpable. Sometimes it feels like it's just hidden away in the shadows. But it's always there whether we can see it or not. Darkness pervades our world system and also exists in our own hearts. Some try to escape that darkness through substances or pleasure to try and distract themselves from reality. Others try to just pretend it doesn't exist by positive thinking. And of course, worst of all, most people just give into it and relish in it. Jesus came that we would be free from the bondage of darkness. He came to grant us life 
and light in our hearts so that we would see His beauty and His majesty. He came to enlighten us so that we could see life as it really is from God's perspective. He came to save us from the darkness and bring us into the light. It's been said that peace is not the absence of conflict, but the presence of Christ. In the same way, light is not the absence of darkness. It is the presence of the light and life giver. In the spiritual realm, the same could be said of darkness. Darkness is not the absence of light. It is the presence of evil. When Jesus came, His task was not simply to flip on a switch and turn on the light. No, His task was to defeat the forces of darkness. And that's what verse 5 tells us. The deity of Christ is asserted in verse 1. It's supported by the pre-existence of Christ in verse 2. It's strengthened by the supremacy of Christ, verse 3. It's confirmed by the life of Christ in verse 4. And finally, it's vindicated by the victory of Christ in verse 5. Look at verse 5 to see that Jesus is the victorious Christ. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. In this statement, John declares that the Word who is the light of life, overcame the darkness which sought to destroy him. There's a striking change in the grammatical tense when we come to this verse. Up until now, all the verbs that have come to this point have been looking back in history and in time. But here, John uses the present tense to say that the light shines. In verse 4, he said the light, the, the life was the light of men. And perhaps that's anticipating what he says in chapter 9, verse 5, where Jesus says, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And that would mean that as long as, or rather with respect to the physical realm, Jesus is light and life is fixed in history as having shown in Israel for a short period of time, somewhere around AD 30. But with respect to the spiritual realm, the light of Christ continues to shine. This is why Jesus said to the disciples that it was better for Him to go away. Because if He went away, the Helper, the Holy Spirit would come. And as much as the disciples enjoyed having the physical presence of Christ, it was better, Jesus said, that His spiritual presence be with them and in them and indeed in all His people. And so the life and the light of Christ is not limited to his physical presence on the earth. It continues even after he ascended into heaven. Now, when, when Jesus came, immediately the forces of darkness sought to destroy him, Satan and his angels. They tried to kill him as a baby. Satan tempt, tempted Jesus to worship him, preempting and subverting God's plans. Satan then tried to preempt, pre, uh, preempt God's purposes by causing people to try to make Jesus king. And then when all else failed, Satan reverted back to his original strategy and thought he would defeat Jesus by putting him to death. Now, if you look at your Bible at the end of verse 5, the ESV says the darkness has not overcome it. But many of you have a translation that says 
comprehend instead of overcome. This has led to confusion as to what is John trying to say here with some thinking that the darkness didn't understand the light. That Satan just couldn't get Christ. The problem is that the English language has changed over time and comprehend is actually the word that John Wycliffe used to translate here in the 14th century. And he was followed by William Tyndale in the 15th century. He used the word comprehend. And that's why it's found in the King James 1611 and of course down to today. And most of you, many of you have the New American Standard, which also says comprehend. The word comprehend literally means to wrap around or to grasp. When we use the word to refer to understanding, what we're literally saying is we're able to wrap our mind around an idea. This is why the word comprehensive has less to do with understanding and more to do with completeness. Unlike today, though, the word comprehend used to be used in other contexts. For example, in geography, we could say something like the Caribbean comprehends 700 islands. It encompasses them. It includes them. It envelops them. So to say here that the darkness did not comprehend the light means that the darkness did not envelop the light. And as the New Living Translation would say, extinguish it. John, or rather Jesus uses the same word in John 12, 35 when he says, the light is among you for a little while. Walk while you have the light, lest the darkness overtake you. Every translation uses the word overtake there in John 12, 35. Because the meaning is obvious. And I would submit to you that it means precisely the same thing here in chapter 1, verse 5. Which is why the ESV rightly translates it, overcome, instead of comprehend. So what is John saying here? The light of the Word of God, or rather, yeah, the light of the Word shines. It shines brightly, it shines clearly, it shines continually. And the darkness... Satan and all evil forces utterly fail to snuff it out. Unlike the Garden of Eden, where Satan managed to comprehend, to overtake, to envelop Adam and Eve and all creation under his influence, and he enveloped them in darkness. He failed to bring the light of Christ under his domain of darkness. Jesus was victorious over every effort, through every scheme, under every pressure, in every temptation, and from every enemy. There is no one and nothing in heaven and on earth or under the earth that can defeat Jesus the Christ. There is no place where the light cannot shine. His light is unfading and His life is undying. And death and darkness are powerless before him. The victory of Christ over the darkness vindicates the deity in that those who rejected his claims and put him to death were proven wrong. Those who mocked Jesus as he hung on the cross saying, if you are the son of God, come down from that cross. They were put to shame. When it came to be seen that it was the power of God that kept 
Christ on the cross as He bore the sin, the sins of many. The dark forces of the world could not overcome the light. And beloved, that's good news for you and for me and for all sinners. Because it means that the darkness in our own hearts is just as powerless to overcome the light of Christ. My friends, do not think that your soul is too dark for Christ to save. You are not that powerful. Do not think that you could ever do anything that puts you beyond the penetrating light of Christ. This week I heard a recording of a testimony of a woman in the state of Texas who had an abortion two weeks after Roe v. Wade was passed in the 60s. Not long after that, she got a job at the clinic where she was paid $25 for every woman she recruited to get an abortion. After a while, she realized there's a lot of money to be made in this business, and so she started her own abortion clinic. And she admits that she is responsible for the death of tens of thousands of babies, as well as a number of mothers. But you know what? One day, the light of Christ penetrated her soul when someone shared the gospel with her. And so she's forgiven. And she's free. And she's living for Christ. As we look into our own hearts and to the world around us, we know that the darkness often seems so stifling. And even those of us who've had the light shown into our hearts, we can sometimes wonder if the people that we know can be saved. Beloved, if God can save you, if he can save me, he can save anybody. Isaiah 42, 7 says of the servant of the Lord that he would come to open the eyes that are blind, to to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, to uh, from prison those who sit in darkness. There are many people who are sitting in prison behind bars. And there are many, many, many more prison people living in the prison of their mind. And they are hopeless to escape that darkness. But the light of the Lord Jesus Christ has come to bring freedom and forgiveness and release by the granting of eternal life. And there is nothing the darkness can do to stop it. My friend, if you are here and you have not put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you have not received His forgiveness for your sin, believe in Him today. Jesus stands holding out the offer of salvation to you if you would but believe on Him, believing that He lived a perfect life that you couldn't live, that He died to pay the debt for sinners, and He rose from the dead victorious over sin and death. And now He's ascended into heaven and He sits at the Father's right hand making intercession. And He's offering that freedom and that forgiveness to all who would but put their faith in Him and submit to His Lordship. I mean, where else will you go? Who else will save you? There is no one else. You know that every other way of salvation is a dead end. 
Only Christ can give you freedom and forgiveness. Church, this is the God that we serve. He, he is the Word who in the beginning was with God and who is God. He is supreme over all creation and He is the light and the life of men. And because He was victorious over the forces of darkness, we who have been brought into the light can go out into the world and shine the light of Christ without fear, but rather with confidence. Wherever we go, the light is there because Christ is in us and with us. And no matter what people do, no matter what people say, we can have confidence because Jesus has overcome the world. So don't be ashamed, beloved. Don't be fearful. Jesus is God and he is with us. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, as we celebrate these truths together, our hearts resonate because we are sinners. And many of us, you have saved. You've shined the light of Christ into our hearts. You've given us the gift of faith. You've granted us eternal life and forgiven us of our sin. Lord, may this just strengthen our belief and our conviction. Would it elevate our zeal and our passion to proclaim this God who is the Lord Jesus Christ? Proclaim Him to those who are lost in darkness. We all have those around us in the workplace, in the home, in our communities, in the schools. Lord, I pray for the teenagers in this church who have put their faith in Christ. That they would have such boldness and confidence that they would shine the light of Christ to their fellow students and even to their teachers. I pray for those in our church who are administrators or teachers in the school system, that you would give them boldness and confidence to shine the light of Christ to their coworkers and to the students. I pray for the parents who have unbelieving children, that you would give them boldness and confidence and that they would never shrink back from speaking the truth of the light of Christ to their children. Lord, we all have various spheres you've placed us in. Let us not be those who light a lamp and put it under a basket. Let us be those who shine brightly so that Christ would be seen and magnified in this world. For his sake we pray. Amen.